0: You are listening to a sermon podcast from Agape Baptist Church. recorded call it live from our Sunday service. Good morning, Church. This morning's scripture reading is taken from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up, Nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we have a special guest uh, speaker this morning, and we are very blessed to have uh, Max Jagannathan an international speaker and director of Thinking Faith. Uh, he is a, also a husband and a father of three. Uh, Max has spoken around the world and uh, in the past five years in Singapore as well, uh, in banks, businesses, universities, political institutions, including Facebook, uh, Google, Apple, Samsung, uh, to help people make sense of current issues and of life's big questions through the lens of the Christian message. Right? We had a chance to hear from uh, him a couple of years back And we have the privilege of uh, receiving the word from him again this morning. So as he comes on stage, uh, let's give him a warm agape welcome. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Thanks, Pastor Nunn, for such a a lovely welcome. And it's always such a blessing to be here with you guys. Your hospitality is always uh, unsurpassed. And so it's great to be back after a a few years. I have had the blessing of uh, catching up with Pastor Nunn a few weeks ago, actually, at another function, and got to meet his um, beautiful wife and beautiful daughter, Joy. And uh, my, um, our youngest, Grace, is about four months old, so very, very close in age. And so whenever we're together, there's always joy and grace. And <laughs> when you have those things, what else do you need? Um, but, you know, I was just thinking, sitting there, about our two daughters, actually. And we Christians and it's the right thing to do. We often name our kids or put these plaques up in our houses or put the magnets up or, you know, have the spreads about all these wonderful words that just give life and uplift and point to the great parts of, you know, walking with Jesus and the great aspects of life, faith and joy and hope and, and all of these things. But it can seem sometimes to people, whether you're Christian or not, that, Maybe we're just kind of using those things as a distraction from all of the struggle and the suffering and the brokenness in our own lives and out there in the world. Now, I don't think we should start naming our kids darkness and suffering uh, and discouragement. I don't think that's the answer at all. But the reality is that life, put bluntly, is simply too difficult just to focus on positive things and hope that we will get through. It's just too difficult to look at the good things and hope that we will get through. And I think it's overly simplistic for a Christian to say, well, it's going to be okay in the long run. We're all going to wind up in heaven where there's no more suffering. So let's just grit our teeth and get through this. I don't think that's particularly helpful. Every one of us here has something in common today. We have a few things in common. But one thing is that we are all experiencing suffering in some way right now. If you're the very fortunate one or two of us that are not, you probably will this week. You probably, will. you probably will this afternoon, actually. Because we are broken and the world is broken, and so there's always suffering. Now, many of us here might not even call ourselves Christian. You might be walking with God. You might be struggling with God. You might have rejected God. You might be looking for him. But one thing that we are all dealing with is suffering. Now, many of you will have sat through and listened to and thought through and even ideally perhaps even prayed through the series that your pastoral team gave you on suffering. And there were various aspects of suffering that they drew out really beautifully in that. They looked at the character Job in the Bible and talked about how suffering can be understood in a few different ways. It can be a test. um, It can be, and it usually is, a surprise. It can be a pointer to God's sovereignty. Then in another session, you were told about how suffering can in some sense and in some examples of suffering, can actually bring about reward. There can actually be growth and strength through suffering. We can see some broader purpose with some of the suffering, at least, that we see. And then we were also told about how God comforts us in our suffering. If we're willing to lean on him, he comforts us through through prayer and through reliance on him, through mission and through his Holy Spirit and through various other things. What I want to do today is kind of take a step back and try to wrap all of those things up, that whole suffering series, to wrap it up and give you a high-level picture through the frame of the question, if God is real, why is there suffering? If God is real, why is there suffering? So it's kind of like a higher-level helicopter view to kind of wrap up the whole series for us to take away. And so this is actually designed for people who know Jesus and are walking with him, but specifically for people here who might be struggling in their walk with God. If you're struggling, if you don't know if this is real, if you've called yourself a Christian for years, but you're shaky today, you're dealing with questions, or if you're just a non-Christian that happens to be a really good friend of one of those really annoying Christians that's just dragged you here this morning, I thank God for them, but this is for you, more so perhaps than it's for anyone else. But suffering is is something that we all deal with. So this is, in my view, for all of us. So if God is real, why is there suffering? Some of you will be aware of an old movie called The Martian. I think it's about 10 years old now, had Matt Damon in it. The opening scene is man's first mission to Mars, and they have a space station. There is an explosion, and some of the astronauts are killed in the explosion. The bodies are thrown clear, and the remaining four, I think it's four or five astronauts, have to launch an emergency evacuation back to Earth. And they launch, and just as the opening credits are rolling and the movie is beginning, the camera cuts back to the wreckage on the Martian space station. And one of the astronauts they thought was dead was actually not dead at all. He's very much alive. He was just knocked unconscious. And this is a character called Mike Watney, played by Matt Damon. And he wakes up, and now he's in this ridiculous situation where he's literally stuck on Mars, and the rocket's already taken off back to Earth. And he has to find a way, I mean, talk about suffering, talk about uncertainty, he has to find a way to regenerate his oxygen supply, grow his own food, make contact with NASA headquarters, and somehow he has to find a way through the suffering. He has to find a way back to Earth. Now, the spoiler of the the movie is that he does make it back to Earth. Now, I don't think that's a big spoiler. Number one reason, I'm just going to cover myself here, is that you guys had eight years to watch the movie, and if you haven't watched it yet, you should have watched it. Secondly, you're not going to cast Matt Damon and then kill him halfway through the movie, right? So I think we always knew he was going to make it back. But the final scene of the movie is set years later. Matt Damon, now a little bit grey, he's a professor at the NASA Academy, and he's lecturing NASA cadets who want to be astronauts. And he says to them in one of the final lines of the movie, he says, you have to apply yourself and work hard and focus while you're here. Because when you're out there, you're going to come across a problem at some point. And if you solve that problem, you'll come across another problem. And if you solve that problem, you'll be presented with another problem. And if you solve that problem, you'll be presented with another problem. And then he finally says, and this is, I think it's the last line of the movie, he says, And if you solve enough problems, you get to come home. If you solve enough problems, you get to come home. The reason that line is powerful, I think, and that movie is symbolically powerful, is because that is the human response, the culturally prevalent response to the problem of suffering today. You just apply yourself, you grit your teeth, you try and avoid suffering where you can, but when it comes along, you just have to push your way through it. You have to survive it. You have to persevere. You have to self-optimize. It's actually a very Asian response, right? Study hard, apply yourself, put your head down, and you'll be able to get through it. The problem is that doesn't really feel compelling. It doesn't give us what we need in the midst of our suffering. It might work on some intellectual level, but the idea of self-rescue or self-actualization or perseverance or self-optimizing through suffering doesn't seem to work. Certainly hasn't worked for me. When we look around the world, it doesn't seem to be working. So in that context, what is the Christian response then? If that's the world's response to suffering, what is the Christian response? What does the Christian message have to say to this problem of suffering? So if God is real, why is there suffering and how do we deal with it? I want to talk about it through three broad categories. And there's plenty more that could be said. Three things. It's because this God is, number one, a God of love, number two, a God who knows, and number three, a God who cares. He's a God of love, he's a God who knows, and he's a God who cares. Now, the good question should be, well, Max, you say he's a God of love, but isn't the whole point of the question, if God is real, why is there suffering? If he was a God of love, why would he let us suffer? Let me unpack this a bit. God tells us a number of things in his Bible, in in his word, which is which is our Bible. He tells us a lot about what he does, why he does them. There are some things he doesn't tell us. But one thing we do know is that God created out of love. We also know that love is part of God's essential character. So love is not just something God does. Love is actually something God is. God is love. It's one of his essential characteristics. He has a number of these, justice and a number of other things. But love is the primary essential characteristic of God. Now, when he created out of love, he wanted to create a universe where love would be possible. He didn't have to do that, but he chose to create a universe where love was possible. For that to happen, he had to create a universe where relationships are possible because love finds its purest form of manifestation through friendships and relationships right now i know because english is quite a limited language so we say things like i love fried chicken and then i love my wife and we use the same word equivocally but love in its purest form is actualized in friendships with other people and in relationships with other people our spouses our children our parents our friends right and so God is a God of love. He wanted a universe where love was possible. For love to be possible, he had to make a universe where relationship was possible. For relationship to be authentic, he had to make a universe where people were free, at least on some level, to choose to enter those friendships and relationships, to choose to love other people. And if you think about all of the friendships and relationships that we are all in, whether it's with our spouses, girlfriends, boyfriends, colleagues, friendships, um, platonic friendships at work or at home or at school or at university, there's one thing that's really beautiful about them all. I mean, there's many things, but there's one thing that distinguishes them in the context of love. It's because you're not forced into those relationships. You can choose. No one has a gun to your head and says, you have to be friends with this person. No one has a gun to your head at your wedding saying, do you take this man, do you take this woman, and then, you know... Because if you did, there wouldn't be freedom in the relationship. There wouldn't be freedom to love. And it wouldn't be authentic. Imagine you take your best friend, for example, if you have a best friend. If someone said to you, or if they said to you, you know, someone's actually been paying me $10,000 a month to be your friend all these years. It would just detract from the, the beauty and the authenticity and the substance of the friendship. The reason our relationships are also meaningful, at least one of the main reasons, is because we don't have to be in them. And yet we choose to be in them anyway. The reasons your friends and your family's love for you is so beautiful is because they don't have to love you. Some people say, oh, it's family. They do have to love you. Well, that's just a social and cultural expectation. They don't have to love you. They choose to love you, and you choose to love them. So this God of love made a world where love was possible. So in order to make sure that was the case, he made a world where relationship was possible. To ensure that was the case, he made a world where freedom to love in those relationships was possible. And as soon as he did that, He knew that in that world, if love was possible as a choice, then evil would have to be possible as a choice. Hatred would have to be possible. Discrimination, oppression, exclusion. All of the moral evil that we see is actually human beings exercising our God-given freedom to love for something other than love. And that explains most of the suffering in the world. Most of the suffering in the world is us perpetrating suffering on other human beings. We killed more of each other in the, in the 20th century than in all 19 centuries before that put together. And in the 21st century, we were well on our way. We have more slaves today in real terms than we've ever had before in human history. Divorce rates are up, domestic violence is up, sexual aggression is up, anxiety is up, loneliness is up, social exclusion is up, inequality is still a problem. So we're not really getting any better over time. We're still just messed up. And most of the suffering in the world is our fault. Around 10,000 children will probably die today for a lack of food and water. There's no lack of food and water. We have plenty. We've just built political and economic systems globally that can't get the food and water to those kids. So we are all kind of systemically part of this moral suffering. And it all comes back to the reality that God actually is a God of love who wants us to love. So he gave us these freedoms. The problem with us using our freedoms is we don't always use them in the way God intended us to use them. But he wants the love to be authentic when we do exercise it. He wants the relationships to be real when we do enter and exit them. And so he he leaves us free in that regard. And that's a big part of the reason, logically, why there is suffering. You and I—we're kind of the reason. I mean, even COVID, people are like, "Oh, why is God letting this happen?" It was us that were experimenting with and disregarding God's model and design, you know, for you know economics and for. Um, Cuisine, and we were messing around with wild animals and animals that we should not have been messing around with, creating wet markets, not creating proper sanitation standards. And so this disease jumps to people. And then we are the ones that created a global system of aviation and people movement that spread this disease in just a matter of months all over the world. It was actually us. Even COVID was us. Even COVID was us. So, one of the big reasons and obvious reasons that we don't like to admit if God is real, why is there suffering? You and me. That's why they're suffering. Because of us, you and me collectively, all 7.6 billion of us, we are a big part of that reason. Okay? So first of all, God is a God of love. That's why there's suffering. But that's not enough, obviously, because we still have to deal with it, right? So secondly, God is a God who knows. Now, this is really important because I've talked about moral suffering, which is the suffering that people perpetrate on each other because we're not morally perfect. But there's still suffering that doesn't get counted in that, right? Right? Like There are still natural disasters. there's still kids with congenital you know, heart defects. There are still people with cancer that got it through no, no fault of their own. So there's still a lot of suffering that doesn't come under the category that I first talked about, right. the fact that God is a God of love and we all perpetrate this suffering in our freedom instead of loving each other. But God is a God who knows. Now, here's what I mean by that. If God is real and he is who he says he is and we are who he says we are, his creation, there are going to be things that he knows that we don't know. The philosophers call this an epistemic gap. In the same way that there are things that I know that my five-year-old son doesn't know, there are going to be things that God knows that we don't know. And that epistemic gap makes perfect logical sense. If if God did create us, necessarily our capacity for thinking and understanding is less than his. That's necessarily the case. If we could understand everything about everything, including everything about God and suffering, then I would have some problems with believing in this God, because he would cease to be God at that point. If I can understand everything about him, then surely I'm God at that point. So if God is real, it would make sense that there would be things that we don't understand. So there is suffering that we just can't make sense of, even in the context of finding purpose, even in the context of looking, being able to look back and say, oh, I see why that happened. That's not always the case. It's helpful when that happens, but there's some suffering, and I know you all are aware of this, There is some suffering that you have experienced or you have seen where there is just no good reason for it. And you cannot see the reason. You cannot see the purpose. And no good comes of it. Absolutely no good comes of it. We just can't be so simplistic and reductive to go to a rape victim and say, oh, something good will come of this. God's working something good in this. That's nonsense. That is just the brokenness of the world and the broken moral behaviour of someone being perpetrated against someone else, creating suffering for no good reason. But here's the thing. God does allow that to happen. He might not want it to happen, but he does allow it. And so the question becomes, why are you allowing this? And the answer is, he's a God who knows. He has his reasons for allowing it. He has his reasons for not getting rid of all of the suffering that we want him to get rid of straight away. And we need to trust him with that. In the same way that, you know, when I take my kids for their immunization for whatever the standard immunization schedule is. And you know, you take like a one year old or a two year old and It's a parent that takes them, the person that loves them, that protects them, that they trust the most in the world. And then you see this parent hand them over to a doctor or hold them down. And then this this stranger in a white coat comes out with a giant needle and kind of jabs it into their leg. And it's probably the most pain they've ever experienced. And then they see the parent chatting with this person happily, giving them some money, shaking their hand and walking out. How How could a kid make sense of that suffering, the perpetration of suffering by someone who was supposed to protect them They just can't understand why that is actually for their own good at that moment. They will eventually, but they just can't in that moment. It's not because they're stupid. It's because they don't have access to the information. So number one, they haven't been told. And number two, they don't have the intellectual capacity at that point to understand. So it is with us. It's not because we're stupid. We just don't have the intellectual capacity to understand. And because of that, God doesn't tell us. not that we're stupid. We're just on a different intellectual level. The distance between my son and me intellectually is nothing compared to the distance between God and me intellectually and epistemically. So the reasons for some of the suffering in the world that we just can't make sense of are just things we have to accept, or we are at least invited to accept that God doesn't need us to know. Now, if I opened a garage door and it was an empty garage just with, say, suitcases and some shelves and some boxes, and I said, there is a tiger in this garage, a 250-pound Bengal tiger, and you couldn't see a tiger. You would straight away assume that I was either stupid or drunk or hallucinating, or maybe in Australia they have a different definition of what a tiger is, but quite clearly there's not a tiger in there, right? Something's wrong with what I'm saying. But if I did the same thing and you saw the same empty garage and I said, there is a spider in the garage, Once again, you can't see the spider, but you wouldn't jump to all the same conclusions. Why is that? Because the spider could be in there and you just can't see it. could be up in the light fitting, could be in a crack, could be around the corner. So you don't jump to the same conclusions. If the Bible is true, and I believe that it is, what we are told is that the reasons that God allows some suffering are more like a spider in the garage than a tiger in the garage. Just because we don't know doesn't mean God doesn't have his reasons. Just because we don't understand doesn't mean there aren't reasons and there isn't coherence there. There are plenty of things in the world that are true that I don't know. I don't know what the capital city of Tanzania is. I don't know what the chemical symbol for dysprosium is. I don't know how many chairs there are in this room, even though I'm looking right at them, I've encountered them. But I do know that there are answers, true answers to each of those questions. This is the big category error we all make. We think just because something isn't made aware to us, just because we are not informed of something, that something doesn't exist. If we don't see the reasons for suffering, those reasons can't exist. And then we start to question God and whether he, he even exists because of this category error we make. It's quite possible that there are reasons for suffering that we just might not know in this life. And he, Now, here is the thing, though. God asks us to trust him with that. He says, first of all, a lot of the suffering is your fault. And he's right. A lot of suffering is my fault, our fault. Then he says there's other suffering that might not be your fault, but that you don't understand. I want you to trust me with that. Now, what should be our response to that? If you're like me and you're difficult and you're sceptical and you're constantly questioning, the question should be, okay, God, I accept that, that you are a God who cares, a God, sorry, you're a God who loves, you're a God who knows, There's an epistemic gap, I get that. And now you're asking me to trust you with it, sure. I'm happy to trust you with the gap, with the things I don't understand, like Job did. But on what basis should I trust you? I think that's a good question to ask God. I think to blindly trust God makes no sense. It's certainly not biblical, not the Christian God anyway. There are other worldviews out there that say just shut up and trust. The Christian message never says shut up and trust. The Christian message says there is going to be brokenness. There is going to be suffering. There are going to be some things you understand, some things you don't. The things that you don't, well, for all of it, but especially for the things that you don't, I want you to trust me, God says. And we should say, why? On what basis should I trust you? It's good logic. It's the same, re- same thing we ask the guy who's serving us chicken rice or the insurance salesman or the real estate agent. You want a basis for credibility. Otherwise, we shouldn't be trusting That applies to God just like it does to anyone. And that's when we come to the third and final point. Yes, he's a God of love. Yes, he's a God who knows. But thirdly and probably most pertinently to this question of suffering, he is a God who cares. He gives us a basis on which to trust him. And that's when this passage really comes to life that was read so beautifully earlier. So this is Paul writing about suffering, right? He says, what shall we then say in response to this? He's talking about suffering. He's talking about the brokenness of the world. And then he says this. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's obviously a rhetorical question. The point he's making is if God is for us, no one can be against us. But why? On what basis? How does being with God and having God in our lives help with this situation of suffering? Now, before I go into the rest of this, it's worth looking at what the other responses to suffering are. Because the thing about suffering is it's not a Christian problem, right? It's a human problem. Everyone's got to deal with suffering. And so the follow-on from that is it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. You've got to deal with suffering somehow. It's funny this question often comes to the Christian, but it should be for everyone. For everyone of every worldview, religious, irreligious, theistic, atheistic, suffering is a problem, and so you've got to make sense of it. It's probably our biggest problem, which means, I think, in my view, maybe it's just me speaking from my former life as a lawyer, if you look at all the worldviews, the one that responds to suffering in the most compelling way is probably the one that's true. Now, I don't have time to go through everything in detail, but broadly speaking, there are only four categories of worldview in terms of their response to suffering. There's one particular worldview out there that says suffering is real, but God is almighty and all-powerful, but he is all-distant. There is no moral connection between you and God, right? It's not a relationship as such. So you've just got to shut up and take it. You don't get to ask questions. If you're suffering, it's just God's will. right? That's one particular worldview. There's another category of worldviews that says all suffering is your fault. Anyone who's suffering has done something in this life or perhaps a previous life. That's why they're suffering. These are the karmic worldviews. and There are several of these. There's another category of worldview that's similar but distinct, which says suffering is an illusion. Suffering is not actually real. It's because you desire too much. That's why you're suffering. So you have to meditate yourself out of this desire to a place where you extinguish desire. You actually extinguish your own consciousness into some kind of state of nothingness or nirvana or whoever it might be called. This category of worldview says your problem is desire. The problem is you desired your children. That's why when you lost one, you suffered. If you can meditate yourself out of desire into a place of nothingness or nirvana, no problems. No desire, no suffering. That no money, no problems idea. And the fourth and final category of worldviews are the atheistic worldviews, and there are several of these, but when they're being honest with you, what they have to say is suffering is meaningless, because if there's no God, everything is meaningless. As Richard Dawkins, the insightful atheist, tells us, we are nothing but time plus matter plus chance, and in that kind of a world, some people are going to get rich, some people are going to be prime minister, some people are going to be billionaires, some people are going to get raped, some people are going to get killed, some people are going to have heart attacks, and there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's all just meaningless. You just deal with it. So those are the four worldviews, broadly speaking. There are several within each category. But those are the responses to suffering. The problem is they don't give us what all human beings are looking for in the midst of suffering. There are two things that we're all looking for in suffering, whether we're Christian or not. Every one of us is looking for comfort and strength to get through the suffering. Right? We're looking for comfort and strength to get through it. And we're looking for hope for a better future without it. We're looking for comfort and strength to get through the suffering and, uh, and the hoping for a better future without it. And then we come to the Christian response. And what's, God, what's God's response? The Christian God. He says, he who did, Paul is writing of God and he writes, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? All things, including comfort and strength to get through the suffering and hope of a better future without the suffering. Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then it goes through all the categories of suffering. Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. We face death all day long and we're considered sheep to be slaughtered. That's how the world feels sometimes. If not, it'll start to feel it later this afternoon. You know that Monday morning feeling that you get? But then it says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So here is the Christian response. The Christian response of suffering is not to say, God's all distant, just blindly trust him and get through it. It's not to say it's all your fault. It's not to say it's an illusion. It's not to say it's meaningless. It's to say suffering is so antithetical to God's design for you and your flourishing and your experience, that God literally stepped down into the world as a person and took on our suffering onto himself. He literally stepped down into the world into our suffering, went to a cross, took it all onto himself. Imagine all of the suffering and darkness and brokenness in the world, he took it onto himself, died on a cross, defeating it, was then raised to life, affirming who he is, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now, because of all of that, he's able to reach out to each of us and invite us into relationship with him, through which we get the two things that we're all looking for, comfort and strength in the suffering. He says, I'm going to walk with you. That's why the most beautiful phrase in this chapter, in my view, is through him and with him, we are more than conquerors. It doesn't say we are more than comfortable, we are more convenient, things are easier, there is less suffering. No, it says there is tons of suffering. The world is messed up and you and I are messed up. There's going to be suffering. But with Jesus, we get to conquer it. And that's why this is so different. This, if you look at all of the other gods that humankind has invented and then you look at the person of Jesus, he's the only God with scars. He's the only God with scars, scars from that cross where he defeated suffering. Why do we think he has those scars? We think he just ran out of power after the resurrection, couldn't get it done, turned the water into wine, fed everyone with the loaves and fish, rose from the dead, but just couldn't get rid of the scars. He kept them to remind us that he is a God who suffered for us, and now he's a God who is willing to suffer with us. This is the only worldview where God looks at you in the eyes in the midst of the suffering that's coming, and he doesn't say, let's get around it, let's dodge it, let's meditate our way out of it, let's try and self-optimize through it. He says, no, it's messed up, we're going through it, take my hand, trust me, I've been there before, it's okay," And he walks with us. Through the suffering, conquerors through the suffering. And so any nonsense you ever hear from anyone, thankfully you don't hear it in this church, but you may hear it from others who call themselves Christian that say, Christians suffer less. Life should be easier if I'm a Christian. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible promises suffering, and then it promises an extra portion if you're a Christian. So if you're looking for suffering, this is the worldview, this is the place to be. We are guaranteed suffering because we are all broken. We're human beings. And then for Christians, we're guaranteed an extra portion of suffering just for being Christian on top of that. God never says anywhere that life is easy, but he says with him it will be amazing. He never promises that it will be free of suffering, but he always promises that we will be with him through it. And then the beautiful verse at the end of the Bible, he says, I'm going to come back and wipe away every tear and there will be no more suffering. And there's a great bit in the Lord of the Rings where I think Samwise is speaking to Gandalf It might be Frodo that's speaking to Gandalf. And he says, will every bad thing become untrue? And Tolkien was actually riffing off a verse in Revelation in the Bible when Jesus says, I'm going to come away and wipe every tear and all the bad things will pass away. They'll perish. Where all the suffering will somehow become untrue in a way that we don't even understand right now. That is a God God of love, a God who knows, but most powerfully, a God who cares. He cares so much about our suffering that he stepped into the world and suffered for us, took it all onto himself. There's no suffering that you and I can experience or have experienced that is not surpassed by what Jesus went through for you. There is nothing. And so he just invites us into this relationship with him so we can conquer through the suffering. That's why in Psalm 23 it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, It doesn't say, now that I'm a Christian or now that I know God, there's no valley of the shadow of death. You've got to walk through the valley. But it's just the shadow of death, right? I don't know about you. I think there was some great theologian that said, I'd much rather be hit by the shadow of a truck than be hit by a truck. That's what suffering's like for a Christian. It's still dark. It's still the valley. It's still not good, but it's just a shadow. Why? Because there's a victory. God's already won the victory through Jesus. So this is a God who came and died for us, stepped into our suffering, now he's willing to suffer with us. He suffered for us, now he's willing to suffer with us. It's interesting, at the end of the movie, The Martian, which is trying to build this wonderful narrative arc that fits with the prevailing cultural mindset, that human beings just need to dig deep, and engineer, and science, and innovate, and work our way through or around suffering. How does he actually get back to Earth in that movie? He's rescued. Even when we are writing fiction, and trying to build a narrative of human self actualization through suffering. We can't even do it. Even when we literally make up the story, we can't do it. He had to get rescued. And that's exactly what the cross of Jesus Christ is it's the greatest rescue in human history. He literally rescues us. Every other worldview, if we imagine that life is like bashing our way through a forest, like imagine a dense forest around Booker Brown or Dempsey Hill that's just like hasn't been touched, and you just need, and every worldview will give you different tools and different ideas. Some will be using swords. Some will say, no, just limber up and, do- like, dangle your way through it like a monkey. Others might bring in a bulldozer. Others will say, you've got to dynamite it. Everyone's trying to get through the forest. And then there's the Christian worldview, the helicopter that just comes in over the top and drops a ladder and says, you got no chance of getting through that forest. You will never get through that forest. You need a rescue. And it helicopters you out. You grab the ladder and he choppers you out. That's the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray briefly and invite the worship team back up. We're going to sing that song, The Lord is My Salvation. There's one line in that song that just tears me up every time, and it says, His grace will renew these days. Whatever it is that you're going through, whatever it is that you're struggling with, whatever you have struggled with in the past, if you step into that relationship with Jesus or recommit to that relationship, His grace will renew it. He will find a way to renew it. And In the storms of life, and as as the Bible promises, there's going to be more storms, whether you know Jesus or not, there's going to be storms in your life. But if he is in your boat with you, one of two things will happen. He will either calm the storm or he will let the storm keep going and he will calm you in the storm. That's a guarantee. He promises to either calm the storm or to let the storm go and calm you within the storm. Either way, there is going to be calm. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to pray over all my brothers and sisters here, for those that know you, for those that don't know you, for those that want to know you, for those that are struggling to find you. I want to pray against any and all suffering that they are dealing with in their lives right now. And I just want to pray above all that perhaps today might be a turning point where they would either recommit to getting through that suffering with you or they might step into that relationship with you for the first time. And I pray that if that is the case, that you would reveal more of yourself to them today and this season and through this season of suffering than they've ever experienced of you before. And that you'd be with all of us as we just try to get through this difficult life. Help us to do it with joy and with grace and with love and with all of the good things you give us, but also walk with us through our suffering too. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast. You can find more of our sermons online on our website at www.agape.org.sg